Welcome to Her Stories, a series of podcasts showcasing the diverse expertise, wisdom, and courage of the members of the Mediterranean Women Mediators Network, presented by peace activist Magda Zenon. In each episode, recorded during the coronavirus social isolation period, a different mediator shares her story. Hello, this is Magda. Today on Her Stories, we have Laura Bologna, a political affairs officer and gender focal point at the Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs at the UN Secretariat in New York. Welcome, Laura. Hello, Magda. Thank you for having me. And Laura, it's lovely to see you. And to get the conversation started, you and I met when you worked at the UN Good Offices in Cyprus as part of the peace process. Why did we make that your starting point of who Laura is? Oh, this was uh, one of my very, very interesting experiences that I had in my in my career at the UN among my assignments in the field, among other places I've been to Sudan, to Nepal, and uh, Cyprus was the last actually field assignment that I had. And it was for me very interesting because it was really maybe my closest experience to a direct uh, daily almost experience. Uh, um, interaction with the mediation process. We were sitting in these uh, meetings of the leaders, the two leaders in Cyprus and the negotiation negotiator team. And so it was really a firsthand, for me, a firsthand experience of this peace process. And I also was um, in charge of the committee that followed the gender aspect of the, of the process. So that was also for me very interesting to try to insert and influence uh, you know the, the the process and the the un offices in terms of including a gender aspect in that process and of course being in the beautiful cyprus <laughs> was a added value and i met you so yeah. there was a, a whole compassing positive experience <laughs> uh, yes i mean i have to admit that all the people that have passed through the un in a long drawn out peace process have all been treasures all of them so uh, that's a blessing as well but how, getting back to your point of trying being one of on the committee of trying to introduce gender into a peace process why is it so hard why what are the challenges you find i think uh, what i've experienced uh, throughout the years and uh, i guess that uh, coming from beijing 25 years ago I noticed we have made progress, but in terms of mediation, like, you know, if you want to look at even composition of governments or parliaments all over the world, the heads of states, I think that the, there is a structural problem, both in the, as we all know, both in the society with the also stereotypes and the cultural aspects of that. But in terms of mediation, I think it's particularly challenging maybe for, for two main aspects. One is because mediation, at least the, the UN, where the UN is involved, it's led by the parties. So the UN assists or, or supports or facilitates peace processes, but basically the, the parties have, uh, you know, it's their ownership in a way, and they have a lot of saying, including on who participates in the, who participates oh, as can a you, can, you can you just repeat that? Because there was a, they have a I, say? I just heard that. I don't know what to do more than what I did. Anyway, okay. um, so let me rephrase the whole from the beginning. <laughs> okay. um, it's, part, it's led by the parties themselves, so they... Yeah. 
yes. So basically, the the peace processes are are the mediation aspect is is the ownership is in the parties, and so often the parties have reluctance. We can say in including women mediators, and that's why there is been a strong push including by the UN and including by my department who has actually an office that uh, focuses on mediation and we have a standing standby team of mediators Mm -hmm. to basically have women mediators not just as a side dish excuse Mm -hmm. my expression but as a side note but really in the leading role or in the advisory role Mm -hmm. so this is I think these are two aspects basically the structural problems in general in societies that we know where they are, so I don't want to go too far on that. But on the mediation part in particular, there is a problem that for a long time people, women were perceived as not having the expertise, for mm-hmm. example, or the knowledge or the experience to be mediators and to contribute meaningfully in mediation processes. So that's why I think as a UN, but all of us, including now with the network and the Global Alliance, uh, we are trying to really to mainstream gender, but also to 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 push for the parties and the regional organizations that support mediation processes to really take gender lenses as an approach uh, and and every more women mediators. But being part of the peace building environment, yeah, I can see why it's a challenge because there is a big um, there's a lot of pressure for the process to be Cypriot led. So the UN cannot be seen to be influencing at any level. What goes on behind closed doors, we know things do happen, but it has to be the whole idea is to ensure that it appears to be, it is a separate-led process so that the local people can have ownership. So that's that's one of the big challenges that I can see. Yeah, and this is the case in, in many other peace processes. And that's what I mentioned before. The, the issue of ownership of the parties is it's what the UN, basically the principle of the UN, when the UN supports any peace process. But of course, by, on the other hand, the UN as a standard setting organization, uh, we, we want to also, in a way, elevate the, sta- the standards, including, you know, like requirements on gender, on the equal numbers of, female participants in in all the participatory Mm. processes I'm talking and mediation is one of those so we're trying very hard while keeping the ownership of the parties to also uh, you know uh, have the parties understand the importance of having a a stronger female and gender element in the process. Is it difficult to convince people I'll start again. Is it difficult to convince the people involved in the peace process that there is a difference when women are involved I, in the process? I'm afraid it is. Uh, unfortunately, I don't feel I have many, many optimistic news on this front. Also, because even in the UN, we regularly uh, collect the data uh, on the, the, the sheer number of, of women you know, who participate in peace processes, and the data speaks for itself. So I think, as I said, I think that the that part reflects more the structural problems. There is, there is also this knowledge, for example, between warring parties. I'm not an expert on, on Yemen, so I don't want to go there too much. But I know, for example, that where you have you know warring parties, for example, women are not perceived as being either part, because there are also, as we know, uh, women who participate actively in the conflict, but also as having the knowledge, for example, about uh, ceasefires or, 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 you know, or those kind of agreements, Mm. which is actually, it's an expertise 
that the UN is trying to, you know, to refine or to, to, to include more women, even in those aspects, because there is a perception that women don't have any meaningful contribution to make in certain aspects of the, of the peace process. Okay, how are we going to, uh, I mean, as a member, as working for the UN Secretariat, how, how, can, how can we change that? How difficult, uh, or, how, how many, I mean, there are lots of ways to change it. What are we doing wrong? Um, uh, this is a difficult question. <laughs> I think that, as I said, I'm... Uh, uh, maybe change it around. What can we do that might improve? What, how can we improve it? Let's be positive. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, I, the answer is I don't know. <laughs> um, as I said, I think one of the elements that I think we are trying to, to, to push also is to expand the, to, 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 to inform that women have different and very varied expertise that can contribute. So one of the, par- of the point I think is to convince the, the, the part is that women have a different contribution that they can make. There is also a different uh, way that women can reach uh, the parties or can influence discussions even within a peace process. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are plenty of examples where uh, when put in a certain situation where you can actually you know, contribute to the peace process, women have often different channels to reach, you know, to reach certain, even certain participants. Mm. You have different contributions to make. You have a different uh, perspective on things. And also there is also the other big, the other big uh, stream of thought, if you want, is that uh, many are saying that we should take a victim approach, meaning if women, as we know, they are often, you know, overly you know represented unfortunately in terms of the impact that the conflict has on them whether physical mental economical social and so basically if you take the victim uh, approach in a way as a as as you are a victim of that conflict you should even more have a say in the solution of that of that problem and women often have as i said they have different channels they can reach more women something that often warring parties cannot do in terms of discussing the solutions so there are there are a series of aspects that have been of course discussed and data is there reports are out there so i don't want to 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 go too long on this but i think data is there that when women participate in peace processes also uh the peace lasts on Mm. average i think I think it's 15 years, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I think so. So there are a lot of, lot of, a lot of advantages to having more women in peace processes, and basically making understand that this is a, an added value is the challenge. But we are pushing for that. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it's also a case of ownership. The same way the country leadership wants to have ownership of the peace process. A woman also wants to have ownership of the peace process. Absolutely, yeah. But in terms of appointment, you know, the the aspect of mere appointments of women in the mediation, you know, table in the main table, often the parties, you know, they are reluctant to include more women. In I, I could name a few countries, but I don't want to single them out. Mm. So this is a challenge because, as we say, the UN, you know, that you know, can, can st- set a standard, but if the parties refuse to include more women, is there is a limitation of what we can all collectively push for. Okay. You've, you've been to quite a few interesting conflict zones beyond Cyprus. 
Tell me a little bit about them. Tell me. I mean, I'm very interested in the Nepal one if or the South Sudan. I mean, these are areas that South Sudan we are still in trouble with. And yes. Nepal we don't so, hear enough of. Yes. So actually, I was, uh, was deployed in Sudan twice. So the first time was, uh, you know, in 2005 when the first mission of Sudan opened. And this was really after the, the signing of the comprehensive peace agreement mm-hmm. between the North, you know, in, in Sudan. And so that was my first really field experience. I was very junior back then. And uh, so, so this was, you know, a, a phase where the UN was trying to support that, that agreement. And then later on, which is one of my, you know, most cherished uh, experiences and, and, uh, in the UN is I participated in, uh, I was deployed with this uh, as Secretary General's panel for the referendum between the North and the South. Oh, which wow, exciting. Led, yes, which led to the independence of South Sudan. And this was in 2000, early 2011 when the election took place. So that for me was to date, I think, you know, I'm, I'm the most interesting experience that I've had, not only for the process, or the electoral process. And we had a team, we were about 15 people, I think, with the Secretary General's panel. And the panel was the, these uh, three high level officials. And we basically on the, the, the great experience has been that during the day of polling, which were we spanned over 10 days because, of course, you know, the, the country is, is, is huge. We traveled throughout, you know, the country, really. And I was assigned to one of these uh, to these high level officials, members of the panels to basically accompany him to polling stations. And mm-hmm. really, I traveled to places that, you know, actually uh, once a Sudanese driver told me, oh, I haven't even been there before. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just to give you an, an idea of where I went, and this to me, and the day when you were there, like in most elections, but because South Sudan was particularly, you know, touching because of the independence, having this experience of these long lines of people with, for the first time in their lives, felt and were actually expressing their their their. Having their say in their the future. They were having a pay, speaking back to ownership, right? Mm. So whether the result, I don't want to go into all of that. Of course, there is a lot one can say. but uh, And unfortunately, as you were saying, South Sudan and, and, and North Sudan and South Sudan, they still have a lot of pending issues that they were do. not resolved since from the time when I went the first time. So, but that experience to me, both professionally for my, my role there, but also just being there. I met Kofi Annan in those days, uh, you know, and uh, because he was there. Uh, so it was really the most uh, inspiring experience that I've had. And also there, there you, again, you see how, including women, including seeing all these women in these lines and voting for the first time, of course, there, there was all a non-compassing moment where you feel also as a UN staff member, to be honest, that uh, you know you you are you have the you are doing the right thing. You mm. have the job that is trying to to make a difference in the world. So that is one of my most cherished memories. Uh, tell me, uh, what do, what language do they do they speak Italian in Sudan? No, 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 no. Yeah, I think you're thinking of Somalia. Okay. What language do they speak? Do they speak English and the local speak, language? Yeah, they speak, I mean, they speak Arabic in Sudan mainly, you know, and in the South they have lots of languages because, of course, it's, you know, 
I mean, they have many tribes and languages, but internationally they speak English. I mean, that's, okay. That's, now I was just wondering that you, as a UN, the challenge often as a UN staff member is speaking the local language. Uh, sometimes it is. I, I I speak fluent French, so in Africa, many places, as you know, you know there is a strong uh, French. Uh, speaking uh, communities and but not in this in these countries and uh, so yeah that is one and the other amazing experience that i've had is i spent one year in nepal in kathmandu oh. also with the mission with the un mission as a special assistant to the deputy uh, special representative of the sg and this was before this was in 2006 and um this was a totally another amazing experience for the country, for the process. The country just come out of a very bloody inter, you know, intra-communal war. What what time? What time are we talking about? What year are we talking? Two thousand and six. Okay. This was after the, the the peace agreement with the Maoists. So, and there in uh, in Nepal, there are as as uh, many of you would know uh, serious issues of uh, you know integration of mm. not just of women which is a major issue in terms of chi- even child marriages and those issues but also integration in general so this was one of the of the different languages ethnic groups uh, it's one of the, the really the core this was the core issue of the peace agreement was in fact integration of all the as- of the segments of mm. society and ethnic groups and so again, that was also an amazing experience. That the, after the peace agreement, they disbanded the monarchy, which was a three, four hundred years old monarchy. Wow. So it was that the day the king left the palace? Uh, I mean, now those and, are life experiences. It's the, they will change. Like Sudan, suddenly the picture changes completely. It's absolutely, not just, mm. absolutely, and of course, like in Sudan, but also in Nepal. Of course, I haven't, I don't follow closely anymore. But uh, the peace processes, and then there was a constituent assembly, basically, which was the the, issue, the the reason also why we were there to support the election of that assembly, which basically was changing the constitution to make it precisely wow. more inclusive on all those aspects. Were you involved and in that? Were you involved in the constitution making? the? No, no, no. We were not because this was a really led by the Nepalese themselves. So it was an internal process, but the mission was there to support the electoral process. So it was a similar um, um, tasking and what we did in Sudan pretty much. So for, for many years I was in these offices where I supported these processes leading to major shifts in these countries through also the holding of elections. One, it was the Constitutional uh, Assembly. Mm-hmm. This was the independence, uh, of course, from from Sudan. So um, so these are, are really earth-shattering moments that I live. <laughs> <laughs> That's very exciting. But tell me, what is involved in creating an electoral process, especially in countries that are not used to electoral processes? Oh, well, it's a very, it's, well, it's a long process of, uh, you know, consultations, you know, with the parties. Again, we have standards, so you know, basically, they have the the country has to meet the criteria, you know, of of certain criteria that the UN tries to to of course uh, meet, you know, in all these countries. And then there is all the technical aspects of the registration of the information with the population mm. of. Uh, 
you know, of the actual ballots. Mm. So it's really a very electoral assistance. I have to say it's a very complex and multifaceted uh, aspect and mandate that mm. the UN carries out. And my department in particular, that's where the electoral assistance division sits. I, I was not part of that. I, I was part of these two, two processes in the field, but there is a whole office in the, in the Department of Political Affairs and Peace Building Affairs that is electoral assistance. So they are experts, you know, on all these technical aspects of that. Mm. It must be quite complicated because, and I'm not, I'm saying this with love, I mean, you're also dealing with people that have possibly don't understand. You're dealing yes. with people that maybe don't, you don't speak their language. You're dealing yes, with people that like are used the, to other, yeah, that's they can, you're used to like the women are used to the men making decisions. So how do you separate and now they can speak for themselves? So it's lots of, um, it's like one of those disco balls with the different little pieces of mirror that shine. There's a lot of pieces to the electoral process. That yes, and that goes to back to what we were saying about structural issues, mm. right? As you're saying, the fact that women for the first time in their lives, probably in certain countries, are expressing their own opinion. Yes. <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a it's a shift uh, you know that that is 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 paramount in mm -hmm. their lives and in, in the history of, of their country so i think in a way this electoral processes with all you know the goods and bad that is is in that they are really a manifestation of women empowerment it's you know because election in a way is the ultimate you know empowerment of expressing your opinion and having a say in the future of your country mm -hmm. right yeah how, uh, the other issue that because you do, it concerns gender, how easy is it to convince the leaders to, or to make them understand the different dimensions of security? Because when they get into peace processes, they usually get stuck on the borders, armies. You're not going to take that piece of my land because it's my land. Or if you take it, what are you going to give me? And they forget to go about human security. How, yes, how, think, how can yeah. you... Well, I how do you change the conversation for them and make the question of security more three-dimensional? Um, this is a challenging uh, question in a way because I think the human security concept in general, uh, not just at the UN, but I think in many countries, is still a concept in evolution, if mm. I may say so. Meaning that, as you are saying, especially you know, the, the parties in power are really stuck because they have an interest in being stuck. It's not just a, a casual choice, right? Yes. That, are, that want to keep the power structures exactly as they are. And mm. this is one of the reasons why women often are not included because women usually, we are destructive in, in, a, in a good, uh, of course, po positive disruption mm. in the society, a radical change, a, a positive change in the society. So parties that want to keep their power said in a very basic way, are, are, have all the interest in keeping those structures in, in place. Mm. And human security is the opposite at, at the other end of that spectrum, because of course it includes all the aspects of, of, women, of, of life from economic, social, uh, education. I mean, the whole spectrum, right, of, of human security. And so it's what I've seen in my experience uh, is that People, parties, uh, people in power, they will change under two circumstances, under external pressure, mm -hmm. that is, you know, or they see an interest in, for them to change <laughs> because it will most likely uh, uh, 
consolidate or perpetrate mm. their power, their staying power. So they will accept certain, you know, certain things if they think they will basically give them an advantage. I know this is a bit cynical, but having, <laughs> you know, but having seen what I've been, and so the, the challenge in a way is to shift, to make a shift in that paradigm. So basically to see that it's not just for their being in power, that this is the interest of the population and the interest of the future mm. of the country, that that's why certain changes have to be made. Uh, do you perhaps see the mediation networks that have recently developed playing a role in this? I think the the creation of the network and then the alliance, which I think was a great also evolution yeah, of that yeah. last year. So now we have a global alliance of, of women mediators. I think it, it can uh, play a role. I see that we are slowly, you know, trying to come, you know, to, to, to a point where we can work more closely together because there were like several groups, right, that came together in the alliance. Mm-hmm. And I think we can definitely, in each, in each of the group, there is, a, there is a potential of influencing those power structures and influencing the way that uh, the contribution of women in mediation can be made. As I said, data speaks for itself. I'm sure our listeners can, can look <laughs> those up. Uh, but uh, definitely can play a role. And I think having these networks helps because the sharing of experiences, I think, among networks is one of the, of the best uh, output in a way because, of course, there are different experiences in mediation also in the peace in the peace building, there are amazing peace builders. So you don't need to be a mediator at the main table to make a difference. Mm. So there are also different ways in which women make a difference. But so sharing experiences from the African experience and, and the Nordic uh, Nordic network, you mm. know, can basically span a wide range of experiences and knowledge that can definitely influence, you know, the future the future processes. And I agree with you. It's the sharing of knowledge, but it's also finding out what you said earlier, this unpacking of what peace building actually means, that it's not just being at the table. Yes. It's actually being the village. In fact, most of the women, their role in the communities is what is more you know, influential. And this is something that I was trying to explain earlier, is that men often don't have access to to mm. certain to certain groups of people yes exactly to a certain uh, you know certain uh, women have access to women's groups who were you know attacked in a in a in a, in a, in a certain situation or they were like uh, they don't have access to water in a certain situation or they were you know in so basically, that's why I was saying that in the community, the peace builders, they have community dialogues and they can, you know, share experiences. And men in, who are warring parties or in power don't have access to certain information, yes, certain experiences. And this is the challenge of trying to make to make them understand that having these perspectives, you know, and not just the perspective, but this whole network mm. that women bring to the mediation, that is the key. Because as a, as a again, woman... That is the key, because there was a bump in your... Yes, that yes, is the key. I know, I know. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what else, I don't know. No, 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 don't worry it. about it. That is the key. That's where you start. So the key is precisely not just the, not just the, the, the experience, but also the network of that women bring to the process of other community leaders, of other women that can influence and uh, 
bring a better result in the outcome of the process. No, I agree with you. We've got to find a way to link the two because if we link the two, I often when we happen to be at events with the negotiators and they say they're at a deadlock and I always say to them, you know, but can you just take a little step to the left, a little step, stop looking at it in the same way or look through another at an entry point. Just take one. And it, men tend to look at what can I win and what am I not going to lose? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and if you, st- before, and right? if you step to the side and think, you know what, if I give up that piece of property or whatever, I might get access to water, which is important. Yes, yes. So it's at the end, as you are saying, you know, in many phases, it boils down to economic resources, you know, mm. because, of course, keeping those power structures in place implies that you're keeping the economic resources to your party or to your tribe or to your uh, family, you know, whatever the structure is. Mm. And so basically the sharing of those resources is at the core of, of the peace building and, and mediation exercise. That's- and the same way that diversity and inclusion not just of women but i mean as we know we are we are trying to to embrace this intersectionality concept yes. you know that you know inclusion is not just women or but it's it's about race it's about religion it's about age it's about uh, sex sex or you know so basically trying to take an approach where you know an inclusive society that encompasses all these aspects is a society that will thrive Politically, mm. economically, socially, and this is the fight of the of the next few years. I'm afraid. <laughs> Let's be optimistic, yeah. Laura. If I had to ask you what you feel your strongest qualities are, what would they be? Um, what do you think they well, are? Pro- professionally, we stay. <laughs> uh, both. Are you a good cook? <laughs> Or you're a hiker. I'm a, I'm a great friend, as you know. I know. <laughs> um, I think my my strongest assets in poli- professionally throughout my experience has been this, uh, especially this aspect of uh, advisory role. Mm-hmm. So I think that taking a taking a perspective that when you're advising a senior official, for example, that I I was in a position in certain, several situations to bring them to the attention of, of, as you are saying, precisely as you were saying, of a different aspect of mm. the situation that, you know, the UN might want to consider. Mm. And, of course, through through your the, the support that you give to the senior official in those situations, I think that's, that's, you know, a valuable asset that I've, you know, experienced throughout the years. And the other strong suit of mine is the coordination aspect, because I think that, as we know, unfortunately, oftentimes the UN is caught in these turf battles, you know, between yeah. offices or, or entities or or even just, you know, in, in situation, in country situations. So basically to bring really to the fore the, the aspect of coordination, not that just as a mechanic, of course, kind of coordination, but to try to take a... Um, a comprehensive approach to look at the uh, whatever situation, whatever process you're you're facing, including all the actors that are there. And this goes from exactly the when you are in the field, when you are at headquarters. And uh, so now, for example, for the past last few years, I've been in this office where I focus on intergovernmental processes. Mm-hmm. Because we service a committee that it's a general assembly committee. 
and uh, so there is a lot of uh, you know of course we have we deal with the permanent representatives in new york we of course deal with the agencies and so there is also an aspect of exactly coordinating all these aspects all together and at the same time try to uh, influence maybe it's too strong but to push certain issues uh, to to inform member states of certain issues that you know are really important and would have relevance in the process so so these are some of my some of my okay well you well, you've enlightened me on what an advisor to a special envoy terms. I wasn't sure. I thought maybe it was just putting all the information in front of them. But now you've actually given a three dimension. It's good to see that someone if some if the envoy has a creative person next to them. Well they, that they, is of course is. Yeah. Uh, that, that is you know, that is the ideal situation. It doesn't always happen, but <laughs> this is what I think it's the role of that person would be in an ideal situation. So that is what I've tried to do. Well it was good to see that the special envoy in Yemen has got a woman. Laura Mitchell is the gender advisor. Yeah. So yeah. It's, yeah. and she's good. Laura's very good at what she does. So yeah. she's it's good to see that good woman not good women, women that I know are effective and creative are actually getting recognition at some level. Yes, we are. Yes, I think the numbers are getting better mm. at the UN in a way in terms of both the secretariat, as we know, the Secretary General uh, has pushed very hard for gender parity. Yes, yes, yes. There is a UN system uh, strategy on gender parity and the numbers have improved. It's We still have some way to go, but... Uh, I think there is there are more gender advisors who are women. There are more senior officials who are women. He reached gender parity at the resident coordinators uh, level. Mm. So there there, there are some uh, some steps that have been taken. So I think the situation is better than it was a few years back. But as we know, the the, the way is always long. And I think the the crucial point in this is not just to reach gender parity and have women in those positions of influence that we are discussing in terms of influencing, you know, in terms of the UN processes, influencing, you know, special representatives, peace processes. But the issue is also the sustainability of yes. that. Because sometimes we reach gender parity and then we say, okay, we reached gender parity, we're fine. And then we move on before we realize five years later, we are back to where we were. So it's really to consolidate that presence and the role that those women are playing in whichever position they are, so that the system as a whole can change and can include that as a normal situation. So, normal so, yes. so it's not dependent on an Antonio Guterres being Secretary General? Because precisely, he's, precisely. he's really pushed for it, it's got to be this... The system's got to change to ensure that regardless of who's Secretary General. Yeah, it has to be a systematic... It has to be a systematic change. I'm speaking for the UN, but the same, as we were saying, applies to to member states. I mean, if you see pictures of the summits, you know, in general, how many women are in those summits? I mean, so it it boils down to parliaments. It boils down to local, uh, you know, local officials. It boils down... It's the whole, as we were saying, it's a systematic problem. And the UN, as a standard setting, as we were discussing, I think it should give the example and keep keep the example standing and you know and continue to show that the more women participate in a meaningful way, because we don't just need to check the box no. because we're a woman. The more we have that aspect, the more the system works and the more society 
thrives awfully. No, I agree with you. It mustn't just be the, in Greek, we say the vitrine is the, the windows. It mustn't just be the windows yes. in the shop. It's got to be authentic, me- meaningful, and really comprehensive. Um, working for the UN, you must have met a few exciting people. If you had to choose one or two, who's, I mean, I'm there, I'm, the fact that you've met Kofi Annan, who must be quite an inspirational man, who else have you met that you feel was really inspiring, personally inspiring? Uh, well, I was going to go back to Kofi Annan because <laughs> that, is really my, that is really one of my heroes. I can use this word <laughs> because of what he represented, because of the his, his own career. You know, he came at the UN as a P1. Some people don't realize that, but that was his trajectory. What is, is that the bottom P1? is? That's, sorry, sorry, this is UN jargon. <laughs> P1 is really, you know, the bottom of the professional scale. So it means that I'm sure he was very young, but so, and the way I've, I had, I had met him before in the UN and then I met him again in Sudan, but, uh, he was inspiration and, and we, we all make mistakes or secretary generals, as we all say, it's the toughest job in the world, I think, because you really have no army, as I think he said, or another secretary general said, you really have no power. Mm. Your power is the power of the flag of the UN and the, and the convincing and the moral authority of the organization. But he was also very inspirational so for the things he had pushed forward for, but also as a person, because of in my also previous interaction I had with him at the at the UN when I was a note taker, you know, taking notes in one of these meetings, is his personal um, he was treating everybody the same way, whether you were a heads of state or you know a junior a P one or <laughs> yeah so, so this and his aura that the aura that we all know him for the inspiration. I think it was really in my in my period, of course, a, a very inspirational, um, a very inspirational figure. And um, I, there have been other other senior officials I worked for that are really have really influenced me in a positive way mm-hmm. in terms of professionally, that are really personally. And what I can say, I mean, I wish that I could. Uh, I wish there had been more women in senior positions that you know that uh, that I serve I worked with one and I wish there had been even more because the one aspect that is lacking also in terms of internally at the UN is the role modeling part of women Mm. which goes down also to the leadership aspect so fewer women senior official meaning that you you as a woman staff member as a female staff member from your junior years you don't have many role models to to relate to as a woman. And this Mm. is also because also the leadership models, the leadership presence are, you know, are mainly the men, men style of leadership. And now we have a USG in the, uh, we have an undersecretary general in the department who is a woman. And I think we can immediately see when she joined the difference in style. I mean, whether it's personal or whether it's because she's a, she's a woman, but there is also a lot of literature on that, that maybe our speakers, if they're interested, can refer to, as there are different styles of leadership also mm-hmm. that women bring to the table. And this is, I think, the, the, another aspect that is need to be underlined, that the importance of having more women in senior positions, not just at the UN, because you bring a different, aspect and a different style of leadership. Well, we've actually seen it now with the coronavirus 
a crisis. We've seen the different styles of the different uh, country and national leaders. And you've seen a Jacinda in New Zealand and you've seen a Donald Trump or a, you've seen a Boris Johnson. You've seen the Norwegian head of state and you've seen a style, the one's inclusive. None, none of the, no one's perfect, but you can certainly see a different approach in each of them. And the woman had a more humanistic approach. They weren't talking down to people. They were actually listening. They wanted their people, the people that they were imposing these um, restrictions on, to understand. They weren't just yes. saying this is the rules. Yes, I think. Yes, I think the word I would use probably over. Of course, we are all different. Absolutely. Not because you're a woman, you're necessarily a, a better leader. This we need to stress. But I think overall, and data shows it. I think that the word I would use is inclusivity. I yes. think female leaders have a tendency of seeing things from a different perspective. And again, going back to inclusivity. And men are, are more stuck in the, in the usual way of, of, of leadership. Yes. Right? You know, it's uh, just replicating the same. Whereas I think women uh, bring to the, again, as we were discussing earlier, bring to the table a different approach. Yes. This boils down to that. And these you can see in, in, in politics. This you can see. I will see. repeat. <laughs> uh, yeah. Women bring a different approach to the table of, the, of inclusivity. I think it goes back to that. And we can see that from politics to the UN, to private companies, to, to, to NGOs. To, I think it's across the board. And uh, we need to keep stressing that aspect. Okay, I agree with you. It's, they do bring a different aspect. Hopefully these alliances and these uh, networks that have recently been created will go a long way to pushing up the visibility of women mediators and the women mediators at all levels, not just the ones that are going to be at the negotiate that can be at the negotiating table. But we really need, I think the world is in desperate need of different kinds of leadership. So I think our time has come. Yes, yes, and just a word, and so we need to spread the news and and you know publicize those those contributions. I think this is an important part because if, even if women bring a contribution, but then it's not publicized, the world or or the people don't know about it, then it kind of falls you know in the same uh, unknown aspect of mediation or, or processes in general. Well, so. my contribution at a lot of the conferences that I go to, and sometimes I'm looked at initially in a strange way is I need to promote myself and I need to promote you because if I don't promote me, no one else is going to do it for me. I need to get beyond this humility of we, we've been brought up to be humble and it's not nice to show off, but it's not showing off. We've got to be proud of our achievements and we've also got to support our sisters that achieve. Absolutely. I was going to say that. And women, you know, need to amplify the voices of other women. Exactly. This is, you know, whether in the whole span of issues, whether it's a mediation, whether it's in the field, whether it's, you know, microaggressions and, you know, the usual in, in at work, you know, issues that happen. Women are, are there to amplify the voices of other women also and to support so that we can all contribute together in, in, the, in a better way. Okay, I think that's a really good note to end on. We've got to support ourselves and each other so that we can amplify the success stories and make this a, hopefully make this a better world. 
Exactly. And hopefully we'll do that. And I know you are a great part of that. I've seen you in action. So. Well, I, li- I like to amplify voices. That's why I like doing these podcasts. Because I, I think that every time I hear a story, I think, why do not more people know about this? So let's let's yes, get out. Let's talk- step out of the box of being humble and let's tell our stories, listen to other women's stories and repeat them. Yes, and one can be humble and amplify at the same time. I think there is no contradiction there, but uh, absolutely. And uh, it's this is a great project. And thank you so much for securing, uh, you know, the, the, the means to do this. And uh, it's a great idea. And thank you so much for having me. I thank you for spending time with me. And it's great to see you again. And inshallah, I come to New York soon or you come to Cyprus. Yes, but you know, this now we are in this situation where we are all stuck wherever we are. So, so thank God for Zoom. <laughs> yes. Okay. Laura, thank you very much for being with us on her stories today and honestly look forward to reconnecting with you again. Likewise, Magda, thank you so much for having me and uh, really I look forward to seeing you and thank you again for amplifying, as we're saying, the voices of all our colleagues in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you and have a lovely rest of the day. Thank you, you too. If you enjoyed this episode of Her Stories, please leave comments, suggestions and reviews and share with anyone you feel may find this equally interesting. A big thank you to our sponsor, UN Woman, and see you on the next episode.